Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 191, Urban Fervor. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Lucy, Dean, and Martha for contributing already. You might not realize it, but we're on the precipice of a major change in Britain. Alfred the Great is about to reach adulthood and enter the scene. The era of Danelaw is coming. Things are about to come to a head. But if I'm being honest, we've been seeing pretty big changes for a while now. Life has never been easy for the Anglo-Saxons, but over the last 50-plus years, it's been getting even harder. This is especially true if you are living in an Anglo-Saxon town. Urban areas have been taking it in the teeth throughout this era. And urban life is a critical part of Anglo-Saxon history. You don't see it all that often. We rarely talk about it. But it's underpinning many of our favorite developments and moments thus far in our journey. Urban life, the everyday goings-on of early medieval towns, is a bit like the rug in The Big Lebowski. You rarely see it, but without that rug, there's no story to be told. And since things are about to change dramatically, let's talk about where they're at right now. As you know, we've talked about urban living several times in the past. We've spoken about it during the Romano-British episodes. And we talked about the growth and later decay of urban centers and an urban elite. We spoke about it during the sub-Roman era, where we had little pockets of urban development amid the chaos. We spoke about it more directly about a year ago in episodes 146 through 148, where I told you about the growing concentration of wealth, the downward pressure that was being placed upon social mobility, and the establishment of small trading towns. And we've spoken about it on the members' feed, like in episode 53, where we went into detail on the growing complexity of Anglo-Saxon life. But the thing about topics like this is that you have to keep talking about them, because they keep changing. Urban centers and the way people live within them change over time. For example, inner-city living today might have very little in common with inner-city lifestyles in the 1950s or the 1920s. People and culture change. And with the climax of Season 5, which is going to involve a metric ton of Vikings and everyone's favorite mythical baking monarch, these urban areas are in for a gargantuan change. And talking about how these urban centers are continuing to develop will give us a sense of what it meant for the people when Alfred and the Danes started shaking things up and reorganizing these towns. The story of the towns of Britain are key to knowing British history. I cannot stress their importance enough. Now let's start with a quick reminder of where we were at when we last talked about urban living in episodes 146 to 148. We were starting to see the Anglo-Saxons develop into a complex society. There were an increasing number of monarchs like Oswiu who were powerful and wealthy enough to exert control over a vast swath of their neighbors. We were also starting to see kingdoms not just force their rivals to pay tribute, like Penda often did, but instead, we began to see them outright take over their rivals, sometimes even putting family members on the new throne. We also had the beginnings of trade towns, like Ipswich, 
You'll remember that the Old English suffix, which, translates roughly into town, usually a town that specializes in some sort of craft or trade. Well, we had those popping up, and we talked about how, contrary to the old way of thinking, these trade towns weren't being established by the nobility. A king didn't say, I think I'd like a trade town for Christmas. Gerald, see to it. Instead, they were developing organically based upon the needs of the population. They began as seasonal marketplaces for traders to offload excess goods. And over time, craftsmen and other professions moved in, and the marketplaces became fully-fledged trading towns that were populated year-round. We then spoke about how the expansion of the nobility, along with the concentration of wealth at the top, was creating a zero-sum game for Anglo-Saxon society. If you weren't at the top of the hierarchy... Life started to suck, and it could get bad really fast. Not only that, but if you were an Anglo-Saxon in this period, you would be living with the knowledge that the vast majority of your kids were destined to do worse than you, just because of the sheer economic physics of the way their system was designed. There were only so many firstborn heirs, only so many plots of land to bequeath, only so many resources. The fact that those at the very top of the pack wanted the entire economic pie, combined with the growth of the number of people asking for a slice of that pie, meant that almost everyone involved was destined to get a smaller slice of pie than their parents got. Again, if you'd like a refresher, check out episodes 146 to 148, and also episode 53 on the members cast. Now, since then, we've seen the Anglo-Saxons change the way they related to many things. Their concepts of rule, international trade, war, religion, you name it. Life has been moving and changing this entire time. And urban life has moved right along with it. One enormous way that urban life was changing was that the nobles had begun getting heavily involved in trade. You've no doubt caught hints of this as you've been listening to the show. We've seen royal houses fight to control places like London, for example. And some of you may have raised an eyebrow when I mentioned how certain members of the clergy were being granted exemptions on tolls, and thought, they had tolls? When did that happen? Well, here's roughly how that all came about. When imagining the shape and form of Anglo-Saxon life, it's probably useful to imagine a funnel. At the bottom of the funnel is the king. And at the very top of the funnel are all the serfs and slaves who were working the land. And then all throughout the gradients leading from the top to the bottom are the various ranks of nobles. As we've spoken about before, the real wealth of this era is the land and what it could produce. So the serfs were the engine that produced the wealth of Anglo-Saxon life. However, the wealth that was created was funneled to the people who owned the land. These were the nobles that the serfs were bound to. Granted, the serfs did get to keep some of the food, but they had to provide food rent to the landowning elite whom they served. And the landowning elite didn't live in a bubble. Sure, they probably weren't working the fields like the serfs, but they still were part of the funnel. So once they collected all that food from their peasants, they had to provide a share to the lord who reigned over them. Now rinse and repeat that several times until we get to the king. So once you get to the ultimate end of the funnel, you've got a massive amount of wealth from all over the kingdom being funneled to one location, 
And as this is a food-based economy, a lot of this wealth for a good portion of Anglo-Saxon history would have been food, or in the case of wealthier tenants, cattle and other livestock. Now these nobles, especially the upper nobles, would have been receiving more food and livestock than they could hope to ever utilize. And there's another wrinkle in all of this. Successful warlike kings like Penda were gathering tribute from other nobles. Sometimes this would have come in the form of luxury items, like swords and other things. But the type of tribute given would depend on what the defeated king had on hand. If you only had cattle, then that's what you're getting. The scale of food that was being collected by the most powerful nobles is mind-boggling. There's just no way that it could all be eaten, even if they were feasting every single day. So if they held on to all of it, chances are that a good portion of it would have just rotted away or died on the hoof. This is the tragic reality of the Anglo-Saxon system. The vast majority of the Anglo-Saxons lived on the brink of starvation and disaster. Any ability they may have had to prepare for lean times, like a crop failure, a bad winter, or a violent raid, was being gobbled up by their food rent. This surplus, which could have elevated the Anglo-Saxons out of their constant precarious situation, was instead passed on to their warlord kinnings. And it was being passed on in such vast quantities that it stood a really good chance of literally rotting away. We're talking about a catastrophic amount of waste here. But the nobility still wanted all of that food rent. They actually desperately needed it. As we discussed in earlier episodes, absurd levels of wealth was one of the ways that they maintained their hold on power. And don't forget, they also needed to be rich enough to grant prestigious gifts to their bands of psychopathic peacocks. So a tax break was just not likely to be coming. Instead, they needed to find a way to convert all this grain, all this honey, beef, and everything else into something more portable and less likely to mold. They needed to turn it into fancy weapons and jewelry, or better yet, currency. Luckily, trading towns like Ipswich had started to develop in early Anglo-Saxon history, and they were now booming. So now, the nobles could send their massive surpluses to market and exchange them for fine gold objects, like the ones that we found in the Staffordshire Horde. With the rise of these new, supremely powerful kings, we're seeing an increased need for the availability of trade. Without trade, it's doubtful that the Mercian kings, who were some of the most successful of the hegemonic monarchs of this era, would have been able to compensate for the scale of wealth that was funneling into their hands. They would have been up to their eyeballs and confused East Anglian cows. As a result, we see the Mercian kings begin to develop a laser-like focus upon London. It was a major trading town, after all, and they wanted it. Naturally, they weren't the only kingdom who had this goal. And as a consequence, it changed hands quite a few times. But during the era of the Mercian supremacy, London was largely the possession of Mercia. And this is actually key. Frankly, as impressive as Penda, Offa, Conewulf, and yes, even that nun-snatching king Aethelbald were, when we talk about the period of Mercian supremacy, Mercia owes a tremendous amount of its successes to London. And it might not be for the reasons you're thinking. 
Sure, they were able to exchange their food rents and tributes for luxury items. And sure, by having access to an international market, they were able to sell their slaves more easily, and they probably would have had quite a lot of them since they were so successful in war. And because it had its own mint, the Mercian nobility were able to enrich themselves by taking a cut of the precious metals that were used for minting coins. All of these things were an incredible boon to the Mercian elite. But there were also some incredible benefits that came with the occupation and administration of London that might not be obvious at first. Through their experiences in London, the Mercians were learning the intricacies of rule. Not the parts where they had to deal with rival dynasties, grouchy family members, attempted assassinations, and wars. They were already well-versed in that. But rather, by having control of London's market sites, they were learning how the merchant class utilized tolls, because they'd been doing that privately for ages. Don't forget that many of the merchants were from overseas, or at least had regular contact with foreign cultures and traders. So these market towns, especially the big ones, would have been using state-of-the-art economic concepts. They would have been like an international classroom for anyone wise enough to pay attention. And the Mercians were paying attention. And they were learning how they could take control of the tolls and exploit them for their own political or economic advantage. They were learning about large-scale production. They were learning about the increased efficiency that can come from specialization. They had a front row seat to one of the best schools on how the rest of the world was conducting trade and expanding their wealth. Taking London was for Mercia what Egbert's exile to the court of Charlemagne was for Wessex. When Mercia took London, it made the Mercia that would come to demand respect from the Franks. It took an isolated Midland kingdom with little more than a strong warrior tradition and it turned it into the dominant force in the south. And they were quick studies. So after they took London, the Mercian leadership became some of the richest people in all of Britain, with a shrewdness to match. It didn't take long before the Mercian elite began to administer trade in their territories. Entrances to marketplaces were gated and strictly controlled. An armed guard and a toll collector is relatively cheap and requires little administrative effort, but the wealth that it could provide to the elite was substantial. So, taking their cues from how foreign kingdoms and empires operated, like the Byzantines, they probably exacted a 10% toll on all foreign trade. And the people would have paid it, because that was pretty much the going rate. Trade was being locked down. And for the kings of Mercia, this was an incredible boon. Now, they needed trade, so it wasn't like they were going to halt all trade in their kingdom for any serious degree of time. So any threats that they made to enact these tolls were probably largely hollow. But by attaching a toll to the marketplaces, which they certainly did throughout most of their territory, they were able to enrich themselves without having to really do anything. This was free money for them, and it appears to have had a weird side effect. It was domesticating the kings and making them more peaceful. At least, a little more peaceful. With the rise of this new attention to administration and trade, they no longer really needed to go to war in order to gain treasure for their supporters. The Anglo-Saxon kings could instead direct their efforts towards tolls and marketplaces. And why wouldn't you? The risk for trade is massively lower than the risk of war. 
and the rewards still can be as great, especially if they can maximize production. And that very well might explain why suddenly the kings, especially the Mercian kings, became very interested in specialized settlements that were popping up, meaning towns that only produced one type of item, or at least that's what they did initially. As you know, we've seen these sorts of towns in Britain before. Once the Britons became Romanized, specialized settlements were rather common, just like they were all throughout the Roman Empire. You'd have entire communities that relied upon the production of tiles, for example. The existence of towns like this gave us an indication of how sophisticated the Roman economy was, and it also gave us a really good window into the empire's need for stability and safety along its major arteries. A town that only produces one type of building material is going to be in serious trouble if the roads leading to it start to get infested by bandits, or if trade routes break down and the market for that type of product collapses. These sorts of towns are very useful, but they're also incredibly vulnerable. And the breakdown of trade routes and the loss of stability and safety along the major arteries is exactly what happened when the Western Roman Empire started to come apart at the seams. Consequently, the specialized towns vanished, and it was generally the smaller, subsistence farming settlements that weathered the storm. Well, with the explosion of wealth in Anglo-Saxon Britain came increased trade, and with increased trade came the opportunity to exploit new markets. Consequently, we begin to see little specialized settlements appearing once again on the island. For example, in Worcestershire, a settlement that was specialized in the production of salt sprang up. It was called Droitwich, though over time it began to be known as Saltwich, which translates to salt town. As you might imagine, they were producing salt. Now, salt is a useful material, and because of the booming economy, there were all manner of people who had uses for large quantities of salt, both in Worcestershire and also abroad. So the demand for salt combined with the increased ability for people to purchase it. And suddenly, you had enterprising individuals spotting an opportunity for profit. The scale of production, which no doubt began very small, had to be expanded. But the trouble is that a salt merchant couldn't just collect brine and call it good. Nor could they just leave it in evaporating pans and just wait. The demand was too great for that, and the production needed to be sped up to meet it. So now they needed a whole bunch of lead or iron or even clay pots to hold the brine. And considering that you needed around 40 liters of brine to make 13 kilos of salt, they needed a lot of pots, and also a lot of people to collect them. They also needed hearths to contain the fires that would boil the brine down to a dry salt. No one wants to buy 40 liters of brine as a do-it-yourself kit. The transportation of that alone would have been a nightmare, so they needed fires to turn the brine into something more manageable. Salt. And of course, they needed firewood to maintain those fires. This meant that they would need a whole community of laborers, metal workers, potters, and woodsmen on hand, in addition to the salt workers and traders who were ultimately putting this whole thing together. And all of those people would also need food and supplies. So predictably, we see evidence that they had relationships with local farmers and potters and other people who produced the goods that they needed for daily life. The trading activity at Saltwich would have spurred on economic growth all throughout the region. 
and as it was a river town, the towns along the waterways leading to Saltwich would have likely experienced an increase in trading opportunities as well. Settlements along the roads that led to Saltwich would have also benefited from the increased traffic of merchants and the like. So the growth of this specialized settlement was actually a really big deal for the whole region. And as a result, the people of Saltwich would have had to have had a relationship with the local lords and the reeves and other assorted nobility. Not only for business, though that class would have been a big market for the town, but also for protection, since they would have relied heavily upon safe travel. Consequently, it wasn't long before the Mercian nobility began to exert a degree of control over Saltwich. It was no longer a small group of dusty-looking peasants collecting brine. This was an industrial operation, and it was producing a great deal of wealth. And the nobility wanted their share. In exchange, they would keep the lands relatively safe, and they could also organize large-scale labor projects. We see evidence of these public works projects in the form of ramparts being built upon rivers, roads being cleared and maintained, and other important infrastructure that would have supported the growing economy of Saltwich. Naturally, it wouldn't be the nobles who were out there swinging the hammer. But they did have the power to compel everyone, even the monks, to construct public works projects like bridges. And it looks like that's exactly what they did. For a cut. And I know I'm not supposed to judge, but they're forcing the locals to build stuff and then demanding payment for it. So not only do you have to build that road, because I guarantee you that the people of Saltwich were conscripted, but they also had to pay for the privilege. That sucks. But then again, feudalism generally does. And this isn't just one town. There are towns peppered all throughout Britain with names and archaeological remains that indicate specialized production of all kinds of things. Iron, pottery, you name it. So if you're wondering if your town was one of these places back in the Anglo-Saxon days, have a look at its name. If it ends in which, then there's a good chance that it was one of these trading, production, or craftsman settlements. Though to be clear, not all witch towns were like this. Not only that, but there were other settlements that don't have that style of name. For example, two of the more successful metalworking towns were Barham and Cottingham. Not a witch in sight. But that didn't stop them. And they were so prosperous that they even appear to have had a wealthy resident elite class. There was a lot of money to be made with these new towns. And it seems that some of the families were eager to get in on it while the getting was good. So it's completely reasonable for you to imagine Anglo-Saxon Britain from the late 7th century to the mid-9th century as being peppered by these little settlements. The economy of Eastern Britain was deepening its complexity, and through specialization, they were able to maximize the scale of production. Things were really taking off for them, and if you were living back then, you very well might have thought that, like London, these towns would be there forever. But then, all of a sudden, our archaeological record breaks. The vast majority of these trading towns and industry towns vanish almost overnight. Why? For the same reason why the specialized trading towns of the Romano-British era collapsed. Suddenly, with the arrival of the Viking Age, the safe and reliable lanes of transportation collapsed. And with them went the sophisticated economy that supported this sort of living. 
So these towns, which would have been like magnets for enterprising raiders, soon came to an end. And you might be wondering the same thing that I'm wondering. Recently in our story, we see Mercia deflate and be overtaken by Wessex. This catastrophic failure was no doubt helped by some disastrous dynastic fights and truly awful kings. But something that keeps sticking in my mind is the fact that the economic system of Mercia was reliant on these specialized settlements. We see a bunch of witch towns in the Midlands. And we see archaeological evidence of large-scale trading and manufacturing. And we know that they were holding on to London for dear life and only lost it very recently when that Vikinger army sacked it and then was later defeated by the West Saxons. So my question is this. Beyond the obvious royal issues that Mercia was dealing with, was their collapse hastened by the fact that, like the Western Roman Empire, their economy was trade and production-based, and it relied upon safe travel, which was no longer possible? By wrecking the international trade routes and striking so many coastal cities, did the Vikings bring an end to the Mercian supremacy before they ever even met them in battle? All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter. Just go to at British Podcast. And you can find all kinds of other fun communities and goodies over at my site, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.